So, Mary, I have a question for you. Yep, listening. Who would you say is probably the most important material girl for the Midwest for the past century or so? Madonna? Material girl. Yeah, of of course. Yeah. Yeah. So if we're talking about Madonna, I want to take us to like a very specific historical moment, which is 1986. (sighs) Year of my birth. Keep going. She had two hits that year. Okay. Papa Don't Preach. We'll get to that later. Yep. And the second, Live to Tell. (sighs) Is this not autobiographical about Kirsten somehow? (laughs) I do think that's true. Although Live to Tell, I'm just like flashing in my mind right now to um, Truth or Dare in the scene where she performs Live to Tell. Ooh, yes. Oh my God, so emotional. Yes, yes. You've hit me with something very real. She has a tale to tell and so does Kirsten. I'm afraid. Welcome back, everyone. This is American Girls, the podcast where we're reliving the American Girl series book by book. I'm Mary. And I am still Allison. Still Allison. Thank you for being here, Allison. Thanks. It's my pleasure. You know, we still have a lot to learn. We have a lot to learn. And, you know, this book kind of wrecked me. I'm not the same person I was before I read this book. I mean, how are you right now? So this book is about a cool 60 pages. And collectively, we literally have 10 pages of single space notes. Exactly. Yes. I read this book yesterday. And I said to myself, okay, you know, I don't usually even take notes for this show, which maybe is a judgment of myself. But I sat down after finishing this book, I stared in the space for 10 minutes, and then I just started typing notes. And and I was like, okay, I'm only going to write down things that feel relevant. <laughs> it all felt relevant. It all, it was like, I'm only going to write down things that upset me. I'm only going to write down things that make me feel feelings, things that I like, things that scare me, things that make me scream out loud. We have so many notes on this book. We have so many notes. And, you know, something that you brought up, you know, just sort of off air has really been resonating with me, which is... We were lulled into a false sense of security with book one. Yep. And then book two, you will get this reference very soon if you don't remember it. Hit us like Miss Winston's ruler on the stove. (laughs) Not kidding. Not kidding. I mean, it it hit me like the train Kirsten and family were afraid to ride in book one. Like, it was so insane. And, uh, like, literally... I would say I don't have words. I do have words. I have many words. But before I begin, I just want to offer this kind of olive branch to the Kirstens listening at home, at work, jogging, hiding from your boss, whatever your situation is right now. We get a lot of mail, and I do mean a lot of mail from Kirstens who are wonderful, sincere people who are basically terrified that we're going to come for Kirsten. And here's what I want to say to you, and in doing so, I am taking language from what I believe is a foundational miniseries for both of us, Allison, called The 60s. Starring yes. another 90s early aughts queen. You know where I'm going with this. Julia Stiles. We both legitimately quote this all the time. I wish I could find it on DVD. By the way, we did get a lot of mail. People reminding us Kirsten Dunn's films that we missed. We're sorry. Um, we acknowledge all of them. All I don't think she's had any misses. They've all been great. Moving on. In the 60s, there's a scene where the son, who is kind of like the good boy, goes to a peaceful protest for Vietnam on the National Mall, and he takes a daisy and he puts it down the barrel of a National Guardsman's rifle, and he looks him in the eye and he just says, we're not against the soldiers, we're against the war. 
we're not against the soldiers, we're against the war. So I want to say to all the Kirstens out there right now from the jump before we say one word about this book, we're not against Kirsten or Kirstens. No. We're against some of the stuff in this book. Oh, so first of all, I love that instead of referencing the actual historical event, which was the protest, you were like, I want to talk about this 90s miniseries. How dare you shame me for that when you and I have both taught that? No, I would never. And I will just say, if you own a copy of that, hold on to it because it's precious goods. It's worth an incalculable amount of money. Because I have it on VHS. I do not have it in any other format because the world has just forgotten about this vital text. But it's very expensive. Hashtag Mayo Committee. I'll never forget. I wish I could buy it on DVD right now. So if you haven't seen it, there's this fantastic scene, which I would say was sort of my feminine mystique, which is this very smart woman is doing a protest with her boyfriend at Columbia. And it's she thinks her turn to speak. And he says, no, you're in charge of the Mayo Committee. Like, he wants her to order sandwiches. And I was like, this did more for me than Betty Friedan ever could. Kind of, yeah. And I'm I'm just like, and I think about Julia Stiles and the journey she went on in that movie. And Jerry O'Connell was involved. And I know he freaked out at Woodstock, but I kind of don't care about that. Like, He's the brother who serves. So that's the contrast. There's a brother who serves and a brother who doesn't. I feel like... In, like, the war for imperialism, everyone serves in this book. Whoo! Yup, that's certainly true. I do not even know where to begin with this book. I will say a few things. When I read this book, it sent me on a spiral of thinking about other cultural things I likely consumed or was aware of around this time. And, you know, I'm just going to throw some titles at you, Allison, and, and we'll kind of return to them as we go forward here. But Dances with Wolves. Yes. Sarah Plain and Tall. Yes. Anne of Green Gables, Little House on the Prairie, books and show. Yes. So much, so much going on here. I just, I feel it. Like I need to, ju- we were talking off air before we hit record. It got us both really worked up. No, I'm, I'm ready. Okay. I'm ready. Let's just dive right in. Do you want to give us a recap? I would love to give a recap. This episode is brought to you by Podcorn. Podcorn is a marketplace connecting podcasters to advertisers for native podcast sponsorships. What does that actually mean? Well, for our purposes, it means that we don't have to run ads on our show for products and services we don't believe in. We take this community really seriously, so we've in an ongoing way been trying to match with products that actually meet our mission and our values and are things that we're proud to support. So Podcorn has been a really wonderful service where we've been able to log on to their site and find a bunch of advertisers who want to work with us that we're excited to work with as well. If you're creator and you're looking for brands that you might want to work with, Podcorn is a great option. They have a marketplace mission to give podcasters transparency, creative freedom, and control. And you never give up exclusive rights to your podcast. Click the link in our show notes to learn how to sign up and to learn more about Podcorn. That's right. So just head over to podcorn.com and get started today. So book number two, Kirsten Learns a Lesson. Um, This one is very much like the others where we have the young girl learning in a school setting on the cover. So here is the official publisher's recap. Kirsten starts school in America, but she doesn't speak English very well. Miss Winston, her new teacher, is strict and not very understanding. 
Things get worse when Miss Winston comes to live with the Larson family. Kirsten's only escape is playing with her secret friend, Singing Bird. When Singing Bird suggests running away forever, Kirsten must decide where she belongs. Kirsten does learn some important lessons in school, but she learns something even more important about herself. Just a few plot points that I think are critical for us to get into. Kirsten is expecting a male teacher, Mr. Coogan, and there are allusions to him being violent. And instead, she shows up and it's a woman, Miss Winston. And we get a bit of her backstory, including the fact that she's been living in a shed and is now going to live with the Larsons. Um, We also We will talk about this extensively, but Singing Bird, to be clear, is an indigenous woman who lives nearby, and she is someone who kind of happens upon Kirsten and vice versa, and their evolving relationship and her life as a kind of alternative to pioneer life is kind of the climax of the book. True. Can I also just say, like, we're out of Valerie Tripland, and yet there's more odd cartography and communication. That's 100% true. I have never seen these kind of, like, it made me think of, like, Arrested Development. Always, That's why you always leave a note. So, and, and to be clear, a central part of this particular story is that Kirsten does not speak English yet or only has command of a few words and their one room schoolhouse is fully in English and so she has that communication barrier and then she has a second communication barrier with Singing Bird where they can only communicate through visuals that they kind of draw to each other. Right and there is some language between them but it's Kirsten imposing English that she's that she's aware of on Singing Bird who kind of repeats it back. Yes, like they're both kind of strangely learning English together. Right, 100%. And that's one of the many strange things about this book that we will get into. But I would like to bring us back to the beginning. I I would just sort of like to go through this book because there's a lot here. I have a lot of questions. I have a lot of feelings. And I just want to dive right in. So I would love to direct you to the opening family portraits, if you may. And on the second page, top right, I have to open this book and see a portrait of Marta. Yeah. Kirsten's best friend on a long trip from Sweden to Minnesota. Marta has barely passed. I am still grieving. Why is Marta here? Why are they confronting me with her image? I'm not a 19th century grieving person who maybe has a photo of like Marta's body even in my house. I I don't want this. It's too soon for me. Honestly, I would have felt a lot more comfortable if it was just like a hair wreath or something. Yeah, or like Marta's doll or, you know, like maybe a blank portrait. Like a black shroud. I think it would have been really effective. I don't need to see the smiling, adorable face of Marta, best friend lost on a steamboat, maybe at the hands of Tia Dolores, who knows at this point. It's too soon. So here's here's the strange thing too. Like Marta is in the rear view for all intents and purposes. And her sort of opposite on the previous page is Singing Bird, who is very much alive despite her family's near starvation status because of settler colonialism. Singing Bird is labeled the secret friend and Marta gets to be the best friend. Exactly. Please please discuss. I do not. This whole... This is all nuts. All of this is nuts. And it's like, this is her bio. Kirsten's secret Indian friend who calls her, quote, yellow hair. So her entire biography is defined by the secrecy required of their relationship by whom, who can say, and also that she, what she calls Kirsten. Like her entire biography is like, oh, this is Singing Bird. She calls Kirsten yellow hair. 
It's weird. It'd be like if my bio was like, this is Mary. She calls Allison Allison. <laughs> and honestly, kind of justice for Miss Winston, you had to know I was going to go here. She is the teacher. And so her bio is Kirsten's teacher who helps her learn English. I want more for her. I have a feeling we're going to get more for her, but it's, I know automatically that you were going to identify with that person just from the jump. So I'm prepared to see you get way too attached and defensive of that person. So I'm just going to flag that right now. For sure. Yeah, absolutely. There's, okay, then we start the book and we are with Kirsten and her two cousins, um, Anna and Lisbeth. As they're walking to school on Kirsten's first day. Now, it's already November. The family arrived in July. So we've jumped a couple months here. Kirsten's been hanging out. She is very anxious about going to school. And there's two things that I want to flag here. One, before they even really start talking about her anxiety about going to school, Anna stops and is like, I need to get a drink of water from the stream. Now, automatically, I'm triggered because it's like, I'm thinking to myself, do we know the source of this water? Do we know how clean this water is? Excuse me, we've just had a whole cholera outbreak. I'm not losing another child to a waterborne illness. Not doing it. They're so close to home. And I feel like, you know, Anna, who's trying to distract from her own possible bad behavior, she and Lisbeth kind of turn the tables and they're like, Kirsten, we see that you're nervous. We know that your friend previously died from bad water or what you might think of as bad air. And then they kind of add a third thing into the mix, which is a kind of strange conversation of boys will be boys, Mm -hmm. where Kirsten notes that boys couldn't fight in school in Sweden. She's like sort of relieved by this. And Lisbeth just sort of does like a crazy head tilt and says, well, this is America. And here the boys get wild. (laughs) Yeah whether they should or not. And then she further says, sometimes Mr. Coogan hits them with a cane. Once he punched Amos Anderson with his fist. If you talk back to Mr. Coogan, he swats your hand with his ruler. It's like, first of all, the image of boyhood we're getting is, as the author would note, wild. Second of all, this person is kind of, as you outed yourself before we started this conversation, kind of like you, which is like that friend who you go to them and you're like, oh my God, I'm so like nervous about this test. Like, what if it's really hard? And then that friend's like, yeah, honestly, it's going to be really hard. I'm also that friend who's like, I just think you should have the full picture of how bad this might be. Like, I remember in grad school, you were a year ahead of me. And when I was approaching like every major exam, like comps or something, I'd be like, oh my God, I I feel like they're going to put me on the spot about this. Like, I'm going to need to know like this level of detail about like Persian Gulf War or something I had absolutely no knowledge of. And you were like, yeah, you probably should know that. Like, it's, it is, it is that hard. And I was like, what? Like, I was wanting someone to say to me, like, you got it totally under control. Everything is fine. And you were like, I don't know. I don't think you do have it under control. Like, you should be nervous. Well, I I think, like, appropriate metered concern is always helpful. (laughs) I guess. Like, you're, you're, like, too Virgo for your own good. Like, you're just keeping it 100% real all the time. Well, I would love charts on some of these folks because... I I have to say this part really did startle me. When they do actually get to school, there's another conversation um, about the outhouse, which is like equally upsetting. That was very upsetting. It is. And Anna says, girls use it before boys. I won't let any boys peek at you. I promise. And in like the best use of italics, the next line, Kirsten hadn't thought of that. I was like, well, yeah, I hadn't either. Now it's in my head and I can't get out of it. I literally have that in my notes as outhouse trauma. Like, yeah, I'm so freaked out by that. And it's just, but also we haven't even, we buried the lead. This school is called Powder Keg School. 
It is indeed. And yeah. it's never explained. That title is never explained. They're like, obviously, the school's a powder keg. Moving on. The outhouse. Like, whew. The school is a powder keg. The discipline is a whip or a ruler. And it's like the main lesson is imperialism and how to be a settler. Like, yeah. the, these are like the key things. A word that is going to come up a lot if we're citing directly from the text, just to put this out there. The students are constantly contrasted with people that they're identifying as savages. And that word savage is used quite a few times in this book. It is. And it's used in a way that's very upsetting. When I first stumbled upon the first use of this word, it's quite early in the book. I believe it's on page six. Let me just look quickly here. Um, yes. And it it actually really stunned me. And I, I don't know if that's because... I have a false sense of progress of how far we've come with children's literature, but I can't imagine this today. But it's it's done with no sensitivity, no preparation, no footnote to even try to say, like, we obviously know this is an inappropriate word for this or any time, but we're using this. The author made a choice to use this because of XYZ historical reason, which would still not fly with me. But we don't get any of that here. It's just there it is. But no one told Dior this year when they came out with Savage. Wow, that's that's a deep <laughs> reference. No, I'm serious. I mean, I think Johnny Depp and Janet Shaw could probably have some cocktails and talk this over. I mean, yeah, I, I'm sure. I'm sure. I. It's just, it's so strange. And I will read the quotation where this first appears, but I'll just note that it makes me feel strange. And I don't, they even actually talk about what they mean by this word. Like it's, it's very intentional in the sense that the book goes on to have a conversation with Kirsten and her peers where they kind of try to designate for her what they mean by this word, because again, she's still learning English. But in this first instance, we have Miss Winston who says it. And she says, you know, Amos Anderson, who we'll talk about in one moment, um, they've basically hyped Kirsten for this male teacher who's like off the wall abusive and kind of dropping it almost like in a casual way. Like, yeah, he punches students with his fist. Like he'll throw people against the wall. Like whatever. It's just an average Monday. And Kirsten's like, ah, and they're like, oh, are you nervous? I'm sorry. We're we making you nervous. And then they get there and there's this woman leading the class as the teacher. And she's teaching students who are actually her age or older in some instances, including this guy, mm-hmm. Amos uh anderson anderson and so he's kind of acting out and she says quote you will not talk out of turn in my classroom although we live in the woods we are not savages like the indians and that's meant to kind of chasten all of them and doesn't really work on amos but that's another story it's just i don't know what do you make of this allison so miss winston comes to us from you know the bustling metropolis of camden maine So it's kind of interesting, like, how she is adjusting to life from Maine to Minnesota relatively. I think it's striking when you're reading it because, again, we're we're reading it from a different perspective. But if you think back to the Pocahontas film that would have been from our childhood by Disney, I mean, one of the key songs in which, like, indigenous people are sort of talking back to the narrative, the refrain or the chorus is savages. Yeah, you're right. I forgot about that. And I, I was looking up, like, comparing how this book says what that word means and what it means in the Oxford English Dictionary. And it does come from the French. And the main meaning is sort of wild. And there's a connection to forest. And there's different interpretations. But part of where it comes from is connecting people to a landscape that is perceived as untamed. 
right? So it's both like person and place and collapsing the two together. What's kind of stunning is I was really, really curious because there is a moment where the indigenous friend that Kirsten makes is almost sort of looking at the school and is intrigued. And so that kind of got me down a different rabbit hole. The odds of Kirsten actually having school in English in this place and time are not great because she actually probably would have been in like an ethnic enclave where they're still speaking Swedish. Like this really actually probably would not have been her experience because it's like now we're adding French as a third language. Right, right. Yeah. It's it's very weird. And I don't know if we should just jump ahead for a second to talk about the scene where they define savage. Yes. But there's a scene not long after this when they finish their day of school and Kirsten says to Elizabeth, what does savage mean? This is on page 16 or 17. She says, um, are the Indians really savage? And Lisbeth says, well, first it's described, Lisbeth made a scary face and pretended her hands were scratching claws. Quote, savage means wild. Are the Indians really savage, Kirsten asked. Some people say the Indians are kind, Lisbeth said, as she gave her doll a second cake. They say the Indians gave them deer meat and corn when they needed food, but other people say the Indians are cruel and bloodthirsty. An Indian came to our door once when Mama was roasting pork, Anna said. Mama gave him a piece of meat and he went away. He didn't hurt us, but he didn't say thank you either, Lisbeth said. He, all italics, looked savage, Anna said. He had red paint on his cheeks and eagle feathers in his hair. He didn't wear trousers and we didn't hear him coming. We looked up and suddenly he was in the doorway. Anna's eyes were wide. That's Indian magic. Lisbeth laughed. That's not magic, Anna. They were soft shoes. That's all. End quote. And as you point out, we meet Singing Bird in a very similar kind of scene where Kirsten is sort of taken aback by this person who seems to be staring at her. And I think as you rightly point out, in both cases, they're represented almost as if they're not fully human, like as if this was something else that would startle you in the woods. Right. And the the author kind of flags that for us and invites that comparison because the book opens with Kirsten standing by the stream as Anna's drinking water from it and scaring me about a possible cholera outbreak. But uh, she's standing there and she actually puts her hands down on the ground and is, is kind of like feeling around deer tracks. So she's very makes, she's very conscious of, which makes us very conscious of her connection to things that are in the woods that she is is sort of tracking. And there's a constant comparison throughout the book between singing bird and a deer. And this language keeps returning where it's like, I never saw her coming. Um, You know, I'm trying to think of if there's another example that I have somewhere. Well, if we go directly to the scene, which if you're following along is on page 22, Kirsten sees this young person whose name is singing bird. And she says, hello, the Indian girl didn't speak or move. But the word startled the deer away into the pines. When Kirsten looked back from the deer, from the Indian girl, she was gone. And if you read through the full scenes, it's like you're saying the deer and singing bird are almost indecipherable in terms of how they act and how they react to Kirsten. Exactly. Everything about this indigenous woman is in, is entirely defined by her relationship and reaction to Kirsten. 
she only exists to be like the sum of Kirsten's observations and and everything that's projected onto her. We have no we have no sense of her internal life. We have no sense of who this person is as a person. She only sort of, as you're saying, it's kind of like manic pixie dream girl, but like manic pixie indigenous child character, and where it's kind of like they sort of exist as a figment of someone else's fantasy, and they live to kind of uh, like be the projection of whatever they're thinking. So Kirsten has imagined Singing Bird as like this person very of nature. And in fact, that's what we know of her, that she seems to be compared to um, animals in the woods in in terms of coming and going. She's constantly being spoken of um, as a deer. And in fact, when um, on page 25, Kirsten has been having this whole back and forth with Singing Bird where they leave each other little tokens in the forest. And Kirsten's been collecting them in a hanky that she keeps in her apron. And so it's almost like she, it's kind of creepy in the sense that it's almost like she's trying to lure a deer out of the forest or like into a trap of some kind. So she has these gifts and she takes a piece of bread with honey with her and she almost uses that as the trap and she puts it on the ground and then hides not long distance away and kind of watches to see if singing bird will surface to get the honey on the bread. It's almost like she has like this keen sense of smell and will say like, yes, like there's a treat for me. I'm going to be like lured into this trap. And Kirsten thinks to herself, please come, um, yeah. like luring her. And I have in my notes is white people magic summoning indigenous people for sport. And I'm still wondering about the answer to that question because the girls introduced this idea of Indian magic, which is obviously a very offensive concept that has a long history itself of sort of having a fantasy of otherness um, onto indigenous people that you both kind of are fascinated by, but also um, find repellent or misunderstand because it's so different from white culture. And I'm laughing not because of that, but I'm thinking back to... a teaching experience you had where a kid said he loved dances with wolves (laughs) yeah many and i mean in much the same way that getting jiggy with it is probably a kind of fantasy pulled right from velocity that film comes out four years after this book which i think is not a coincidence nope i don't think so at all it's that well i was laughing because someone we both know described like this student said allegedly i wasn't there um, my favorite movie is Dances with Wolves. And this person responded like, that's a white man fantasy. Yes. And it is. Like, it's this weird fantasy that you could possibly become part of an indigenous, like, people of which you have no, with which you have no relationship. But sort of you can use your privilege of whiteness to just buy your way in through trade or, you know, false assimilation or basically imperialism. It's so insane. But Dances with Wolves like totally normalized that practice. I don't know if anyone's seen that, but I remember growing up, my dad would let us watch that when my mom wasn't home because my mom would never let us watch anything that was violent. But my dad loved like military history type movies. So I saw that at a very young age. And like every time I hear the word Tatanka, I'm like, oh God, please not again. But Mm -hmm. like it's so much, but I... That movie is all, I mean, I kind of probably consumed them around a similar age. So for me, it doesn't track that it's that many years past when this book came out, but it makes sense. So, I mean, I'm wondering, like, did Kevin Costner, like, read this book to his daughter and then kind of look dreamily middle distance one night reading her a bedtime story and say, like, but what if instead of a bird, it's a wolf? And what if instead of singing, it's a dance? He's like, I've got it. I got it. Crack that case. Well, I think part of what makes certain elements of this book 
connect to longer lasting tropes in American culture is Kirsten is struggling at school, right? She's struggling because, first of all, it's not in her native language. There doesn't seem to be a ton of familial support or they're doing the best they can with this transition in terms of her learning the language because they're still speaking Swedish at home. And part of where Singing Bird becomes central to the plot is Kirsten meets her family and then starts to seriously consider if she wants to join their community and leave her community. But the crux of it is not like she doesn't like her family. It's not because she doesn't like her friends. It's because she's trying to escape school. And there's sort of this implication that school has become too challenging. There's a language barrier But if she joins this other community, despite a much bigger language barrier and essentially no support, that she would just be fine. Right. And I think she has that false sense because they have this image-based system of communication. But also, anytime Kirsten has tried to verbalize anything to Singing Bird, it's an English word that she knows that Singing Bird doesn't. And she sort of imposes it on Singing Bird to have it mirrored back to her. And then there's almost like this manufactured sense of connection or belonging like, oh, like Kirsten says pretty when she's like looking at, I think, uh, a small clay pot that Singing Bird Mm -hmm. has brought her. And she says, oh, it's pretty. And um, Singing Bird basically mirrors that and says a variation of pretty or that's what Kirsten thinks she said. And then basically her entire personality is sort of defined by that moment. Like all she exists, she has no desires or motivations of her own, except at the end wanting Kirsten to come with her family as they travel for the winter to find food. Um, But that kind of bears out. I read this article that I want to share called Silenced Voices Taken from American Indian Characters in Children's Literature from a 2016 issue of American Indian Quarterly by um, a woman named Dawn Quigley. And one of the things that she points us to in this article that was really interesting to me was this idea that the first words a character speaks are often defining and it offers a significant reading into their personality. So if we think about the first words we hear singing birds say and having them be this kind of approximation of an English word that she's mirroring back, it kind of tells you a lot about what the author imagines her personality to be or wants her personality or personhood to serve, what role she wants it to serve in this story, which is often as like a space for Kirsten to work out um, the challenges of embracing her so-called Americanness and whether or not she's willing to commit to that in the form of school, which, as you point us to, is already unrealistic to start with because she would not have attended an English-speaking school likely to begin with. No, and I'll tell you the truth. When Singing Bird comes near the one-room schoolhouse, like I hope Kirsten is a true friend and tells her to run very far away. Yes! It's just, it's so much of this is is based on Kirsten's own challenges in assimilating to this new community. And I have real compassion for what Kirsten's going through. I can't imagine what it must be like to be in a one-room schoolhouse with people of all of different ages and in a whole new country and community and not speak the so-called dominant language, especially that the only one taught in school. Um, and yet it seems like Singing Bird is ill-used here because... You know, certainly Singing Bird has a host of insecurities and fears all her own, and it's impossible for us to know what work Kirsten is doing in helping her with those, um, Mm. because so much of the emphasis is on Kirsten and her internal life. And I know that that's the focus of the book, but because this book is really about their friendship, it's just unfortunate that it's really a one-sided friendship by nature of the constraints of this book. 
Well, I mean, you look back, right? And, you know, we've done a lot of contrasting between Josefina and Felicity. But if you do want to think of Ben as a friend of Felicity, which I think he is, I mean, Ben had degrees of rebellion that were maybe a bit realistic at times, but at least he had a full-fledged personality. Mm-hmm. Yeah, totally. I mean, I'm also thinking, you know, he he was like a little bit too big for his britches and sometimes those britches were also missing. Um, (laughs) But several people on different American girl boards that I was visiting when researching this book have pointed out that, you know, not only is there really not a lot to represent Singing Bird in the material culture side of American Girl, um, I found on one blog where someone talked about the fact that, you know, she is listed as the official best friend, um, but no doll of her has ever been produced. And since the official best friends line of these early ones has been discontinued, there probably will never be one. Oh, no, that's terrible. It is sad. And I was trying to discern, and we've had a few people reach out to us with topics related to this, but I was trying to get more precise information and looking at, okay, so this place, this time period, probably what would be her background, right? Because we haven't been given that information. And I found a source that in 1855, a reservation for a group called the Rabbit Lake Band of Mississippi Chippewa um, was made not too far from this area. And then um, the village of Ojibwe was established near this same kind of river. Um, So it's possible that this is the communities that we're talking about and that actually these conditions which Singing Bird is describing, you know, that they're starving, that there's a resource issue likely caused by the colonists, that maybe this is like actually based on events that led to a forced move to this reservation. Hmm. That's interesting. I don't know. We don't know because we're not given that, but... All we're really given about the wider picture is something that Kirsten's uncle says to his children, which they relate to Kirsten, which is that he has said that he's worried for what will happen if um, the indigenous people need land and food, because that will be a source of possible violence, because he says something to the effect of, you know, we need land and they do too. So if they don't have it, what's going to happen if they don't have food? Um, Mm. how will they respond and what will that mean for us so we get this sort of like white vulnerability in response to their own imperialism but we have no affordance or explanation of what that might feel from an indigenous perspective which come to think of it is strange because we are given a scene where Kirsten does go to Singing Bird's home and she meets her parents and they have this incredibly stereotypical conversation about like, oh, like you taught my daughter English. We'll call you yellow hair. Like you can hang out basically whenever. And Kirsten feels so warm there. And so I don't know, like at home in this weird way, like hashtag playing Indian. But it's like, it's too much basically. So it's like we are given a scene where we do get these adults in the indigenous community and they are not afforded the same opportunity, even like through the hearsay of their children to relay like what fears they have about their situation and anxieties they have about white people in their community. Yeah. And I, I found like that part where she visits their community to be, you know, potentially a great opportunity because I think part of what the author was trying to show was the many similarities between their lives, you know, the way that she lives kind of putting her immediately in a scene of sort of like cooking and just like, everyday activity. Um, I think what I was really struggling with over and over was 
both the obsession with the language barrier when it came to Kirsten and then like the obvious abandonment of that as a plot line. Right. Yes, exactly. Because these people would not really be communicating at all. And even when she's sitting in school, right, and she's sort of terrified of the teacher, it's never really established that the teacher can speak Swedish. Definitely not. Like the way, yeah. (laughs) It's not clear how they're forming relationships. And what actually would have been kind of fascinating, and this would have been a really hard book to write, is to think about the ways in which Kirsten is an outsider in one particular way and her friend is an outsider in another particular way. And they're both kind of dealing with these barriers to communication with other people in their lives. Yeah, I was thinking that throughout that you're right, that would be a next to impossible book to write in many ways. Or it would ask the reader to know Swedish, um, to identify an actual indigenous group from which Singing Bird um, descends and have some kind of linguistic signifier there that could also like the reader might also be aware of and knowledgeable in and English and have you kind of like switching between all three to kind of show the ways that they don't fit in any one of those categories or they're struggling to transcend them Um, but the book does a lot of weird maneuvering to kind of get past what might be actual barriers Um, like for example on page 33 they have their first meeting Kirsten and, and Singing Bird And then the book just sort of jumps right past whatever barriers that they might actually have to actually becoming friends by just announcing it almost like a speech act, like they are friends now. (laughs) Um, So she says, you know, she references keeping gifts in her apron, the ones that Singing Bird gave her, and says, quote, the book just says this, quote, that was the Indian girl's name, Singing Bird. She and Kirsten were already the best of friends. Every day they'd explore the woods and the caves along the stream. It's like, so we just get told that was the Indian girl's name, Singing Bird. How did we learn her name was Singing Bird? And I kept trying to figure out why that would have been the choice. Like I I did a ton of searches to try to examine where that may have come from. And there was a pretty prominent book of sort of her period a little bit after where there's an entire section called Singing Bird. Um... So this comes from a few different places. There's a story called Indian Captive, the story of Mary Jameson um, that's published in 1941. And there's a section called Singing Bird. And there's a whole story about that. Um, And that's based on a much older story um, written by James Seaver. But it's about the life of captive Mary Jameson from 1856. And that has the Singing Bird as well. So it's like the same person story. There is a person named Singing Bird. But how much that's really based on anything is is hard to tell. Um, this is a, a 15-year-old girl who's taken captive in 1758. And so about 100 years later, this story kind of gains traction when it's published by James Sieber. I mean, how do you think that that's in conversation with this? You know, I do because I think there's a few different things happening. I was looking back, as I know you were too, with different evidences of children's literature published about the same time as this 1986 book or just in the 20th century. So this is almost 50 years exactly after the Little House books are coming out. Um, It's before a book called Ballad of Lucy Whipple, which is sort of a classic, quote, pioneer girl story. Um, It's almost 51 years after Caddy Woodlawn, which is another book in this genre, But frankly, I think all these things connect because I think there's sort of this underlying fear that Kirsten is going to defect in this book and go live in a teepee. And I think I say fear because 
The whole time, this friend is kept a secret from the family, which implies that there's a reason she shouldn't be with them. Hmm. Like, it, to me, there there was, like, this whole buildup of this possible fear that she might actually leave the community, that she doesn't feel like America is her home in the sense that she thinks of it, which is her family's compound, this Swedish kind of area, and that she's going to go live with these people, um, which I have seen elsewhere listed as Dakota Indians. But I think it's important that that's not specifically named in the book. Hmm. Like, she doesn't have that concept. But I'm not convinced that she wouldn't have gone with Singing Bird. Like, what do you think holds her back? So she, when she's listing the reasons, she's saying, my parents might worry. They might not, they would not give me permission to go. But interestingly, she doesn't say, and I would miss them. Right. So it's almost kind of like a brass tacks explanation. It's like, well, here's practically why I can't do it because my parents would worry and they won't give me permission. But it's not from an emotional connection situation. Like, it's not like she's like, and I love my brothers, Lars Larson, most ill conceived name, possibly (laughs) in the books we've encountered so far. Um, or her other brother, Peter, or her new cousins that she's just met. It's, you know, it's like, there's something about this connection that's so fascinating to me, which is like, it kind of reminds me of when kids growing up um, have invisible friends, and they feel like this intense emotional connection to a friend that they invent. Mm. And that friend plays a psychological role in their development at times. And then when they don't need the friend anymore, it disappears. Like, that's almost how I read this book in some way. And I don't in any way want to diminish the importance of this indigenous character in the ways that I think actually the book does. But instead to suggest that I think for Kirsten as a young girl in a very traumatic situation, like having just lost her best friend in a very sad, traumatic way, like I think she has discovered this friend who for whatever reason makes her feel comforted in some way and so she serves this important purpose and and also she must be kept secret well i mean something i'm i'm wondering right is if we put such a primacy on a certain kind of communication like you and i specifically and many other people you know we live in such a text heavy and a talk heavy world maybe there's something we can't fathom about this just being a very different kind of friendship Right. And maybe they, you know, we get this description after we get told sort of past tense, everyone knows their best friends and her name is Singing Bird that, you know, they spend a lot of time in the woods together, like going through and looking, looking for different animals. And she says Singing Bird taught, taught me how to do like this kind of bird call. And, you know, they have this very like sensory relationship where they just go out and experience nature together. So that kind of bond may not require, as you're saying, verbal communication, like drawing each other pictures of scenes in nature, like they use the sun to tell time and make set a time for their next meeting. Like all of that may be what she needs in that moment. Well, if you think back, one of her favorite activities with Marta, you know, pre-cholera was they loved to watch the sort of outlines and the trajectories of the birds. And if you think about it, like certain things do actually track between this first friendship and this second friendship, like 
reckless consumption of food and snacks outside. Um, the way that they both love to watch birds, the way, I don't know, like even if you think about the way that she kinds of locks in on Marta when they reconvene in Chicago, that moment is sort of beyond words for them. Like maybe this is just that Kirsten yeah. feels and doesn't say. Well, and also they kind of, she clearly has a totemic value um, or investment in her friend that that having Singing Bird leave her, you know, a couple beads or that small clay pot or things from nature like she tre- literally treasures those items and keeps them in her handkerchief folded up in her apron so just the the value or the totemic quality of maybe being at school and being scared about being there and not knowing there's this whole b plot line where she has to learn how to memorize a poem and recite it we'll get to that in a second but you could imagine a, a girl being scared and being at school and reaching into her apron and feeling those small offerings and gifts from singing bird and thinking and feeling comforted like oh i have a friend you know i have someone who's you know cares for me or you know i know that after school where i feel uncomfortable i'm going to be able to go out and run through the woods in a place where i'll feel comfortable because again she even says at school the moment she feels where she fits in is outside because she's faster than a lot of the other students even though she can't speak english or excel academically quite yet Well, and just, you know, again, if you're following along to point you to a scene that I think makes this really clear, she's given one of the shortest poems to recite because she's still learning English. And still, when she and Anna are talking about it, she has this kind of terrible moment where she realizes she's still probably not going to be able to do it. And she says, how could she ever learn all these words? She wished she could just vanish from powder keg school like a ghost disappearing into the night. I think in some ways her new friend is kind of living out this fantasy that she can't, which is she seems to have a lot more freedom and she's not forced into this situation where, you know, I can only try to imagine because I haven't had this experience, but we've heard from listeners who have had the experience of being new to the United States, not having the language that was spoken in their school spoken at home and that feeling of alienation. Like, yeah, not having to talk with your new best friend probably feels like a relief. Yeah, I can totally imagine that. My mom actually works with an organization teaching ESL um, to refugees, and she often shares experiences with me with her students about what motivates them to come. And it's not having like kind of these high-flying conversations about life, but it's the terror that comes from knowing that you know, one woman in particular wanted, I think, to take her child to the doctor and wanted to be able to communicate the symptoms she saw in her child in terms that would be legible and Mm. really panicked about not being able to do that basic thing or to get a job as a bagger, as another student did in a grocery store and being able to know how to do the basic tasks as described in, you know, the instructions she was given. So, yeah, I think the pressure of everyday life, um, is in some ways incalculable, but it's a trauma that's kind of hiding in plain sight because it gets mapped onto maybe like bigger stories about, you know, like passing a citizenship test or something that seems like a singular event and not sort of the quiet events of everyday life. Well, and I want to cite something from the adorably named 
Amenopedia, which is the Minnesota Encyclopedia. I love that they worded it. Yes. Um, which was about the Swedish connection to Minnesota, sort of like, why did this happen? What are the numbers like? And Kirsten would be considered first wave um, through the 1850s and through the 1860s um, pre-Homestead Act. And we can talk about that a bit more later um, when that comes up. But there's this kind of pivotal moment where there's like just getting to be enough of a concentration of Swedish people. And what I like about this article is it emphasizes that these people created their own enclaves. And I just wanted to pull out this particular quote. Swedish immigrants in Minnesota spoke, speed, spoke Swedish with one another and centered their lives around the Swedish Lutheran Church. Their children attended Swedish schools and learned to read the Swedish Bible. And I think what's important about that is people might have sort of fantasies about people in their own family coming and immigrating. And as genealogist activists have shown us, many people for a whole bunch of reasons never felt a need or just chose not to learn English because they lived in these enclaves. Right, exactly. And, you know, like, for example, my great-grandfather lived most of his adult life in Rhode Island, and he came here from Calabria in Italy. He never learned English. He didn't feel like he needed to because everyone in his life in his small town spoke Italian. And, you know, in a weird way, I'm kind of reflecting on this now, thinking about Kirsten and Singing Bird, but my grandmother, after whom I'm named, I've talked about her on the show before, Fluffy, who wore sweatsuits with a gold chain and Nikes, uh, my hero. When she married my grandfather and moved to this town, first of all, people treated her like she was crazy because she had bright red hair and she lived in a town full of people who did not often have red hair. And they treated her as sort of like an oddity for that, according to her. But secondly, she was charged with the care of her father-in-law who did not speak a word of English and she did not speak a word of Italian. And yet, by her own account, they were basically best friends, which is sort of like nonsensical to me. But she would take him to the, like, drop him off at a bar and he did not drink, but he wanted to basically hang out with his friends. So he would go there and have a cup of milk. And then she, <laughs> like, this is true. Like, he would go there and he would, like, order a glass of milk at the bar and they'd all be drinking and he would, like, sort of, like, you know, yuck it up with them and drink milk. And then when he had had enough, he would call her and he knew how to say her name, which is also Mary. And she would just go down there and get him. And then they would sort of like yell at each other in two distinctly different languages, but somehow both know what they meant. And anyway, she was like, yeah, we had great talks. I'm like, but you didn't know what he was saying. And he had no clue what you were saying. And she was like, yeah. And basically like, so what? I think they had a kind of like singing bird connection. Like, who the heck knows? I mean, hopefully without the indigenous appropriation. But yeah, sure. I mean, it's it, it, there are certain relationships that are sort of beyond comprehension and maybe beyond language. And, you know, maybe our listeners have similar examples in their own lives. But it, that literally did not occur to me until right now as we were talking about this. Like, I was thinking about all the stories in this book. And, you know, I always like to figure out, you know, we did it with the piano. We've done it with some other things like where did this all come from? Or like, what's the circular loop that makes all this make sense? Yes. I mentioned at the beginning that Madonna's Live to Tell just feels so spot on. The part we haven't talked as much about is Kirsten is expected to recite a poem after memorizing it, and that's a challenge. And so ultimately, the teacher, who we also have not given good airtime to, kind of coaches her into telling her life story and then writes a poem based on it. And if that is not, I have a tale to tell. Sometimes it gets so hard to hide it well. I was not ready for the fall. Hi, school starts in autumn. 
too blind to see the writing on the wall. Like, how Whoa. is this? Like, honestly, I kind of feel like Janet Shaw should try to go for Madonna. Because yeah. then this continues. A man can tell a thousand lies. I've learned my lesson well. That's a metaphor for America, oh my obviously. God. Hope I live wow. to tell because Marta just died. The secret I have learned till then, it will burn inside of me. Like, we're never going to know that secret because of communication barriers. Oh, my God. I I'm just being honest. Literally don't even know what to say. Also, isn't borderline around this moment, too? That I can't speak to. I know Papa Don't Preach was her other hit this year. This okay. sent me down a path. I am. So, oh, my God. My head is spinning. Yes. Please tell me more. So the other connection that I felt was fairly obvious, and I know that you're still on a Janet Jackson crusade. Why am I not on a Janet Jackson crusade? Never. Thank you. So I'm watching videos of her from 1986. It's like, I'm trying to read the signals. I'm trying to like figure out what we could have missed. When we learn about the character of Miss Winston, I do believe that, because in this case, I'm going to assume it went the other way. I am going to assume that Janet had other Janet playing, so Shaw to Jackson, mm-hmm. had her playing, and she hears Nasty come on. Yep. And she starts to sketch out a character, and and here's what Janet Jackson is singing. I'm not a prude. I just want some respect. <laughs> so close the door if you want me to respond. Also, it's very cold in this classroom. Mm-hmm. Privacy is my middle name. We don't learn her middle name, <laughs> so that checks. My last name is Control. Yep. It's figurative. No, my first name ain't baby. It's Janet. And that's when Janet Shaw is like, this is it. I mean, Miss Winston, if you're nasty. But it, okay. It tracks. May I read the ruler segment? I was going to say, we cannot end this episode without reading what you have claimed is your favorite scene in all of, I don't know if Western literature, but definitely the American Girl series so far. This scene on page 10 made me laugh so hard because she's trying to teach them words. She's trying to keep them warm. No one can trust Amos. We I think that. we should do this as a scene. And do you okay. want do you want to do the be the narrator? Do you want me to be the narrator so you can be Miss Winston? Yeah, sure. That's great. Okay, why don't you start with my father could not be a ship's captain? We're on page 10. My father could not be a ship's captain if he weren't in charge of his crew. I couldn't be a teacher if I weren't in charge of my students. Again, she raised the ruler high and smacked the stove. This is your first lesson, she said. Miss Winston hit the stove. Miss Winston is the subject of that sentence. Hit is the verb. The direct object of hit is the stove. Be careful that the direct object of hit isn't the student. Do you have any questions? No one said a single thing. End quote. Like, it's terrifying. That was chilling to my core. I was like, this lady is not kidding. For her to, first of all, terrify me with a grammar lesson, which is my secret shame. Like, there's a part of me that's like, I was never really taught to properly diagram sentences, so I was paying attention during the scene. Oh, my God. But also just, like, her slapping the stove with a ruler. Yeah. So I'm going to go directly to Catherine Beecher to help us understand her. Sure. Like when we say we have 15 pages of notes, we're not kidding. No, we're not. I know that that number's gone up since the beginning. So she describes an ideal teacher in this period as qualified intellectually, possessed of missionary zeal and benevolence, 
and ready to go to the most ignorant portions of our land to raise up schools to instruct in morals and piety and to teach the domestic arts and virtues. And it's like, if you don't hear a ruler snap at the end of that, I can't help you. Catherine Beecher is a human ruler snap, period. <laughs> like, yeah. I haven't looked at the Beecher family crest in some time, but I believe that if it's not a ruler, like, slapping someone or a stove, then it's fake. Basically, I also found a trend like, Kirsten's, you're all lovely. People who've written about the history of what one person called prairie school women, it's like they're all kind of in this mode of like, you know, maybe their equivalent of a corset is like just a bit too tight because they like it that way. Like this woman went through systematically um, Mary Hubert Cordier and she tracked exactly how many women were teachers. And she found this fascinating diary of a woman named Bessie Tucker Gilmer. And she is sort of like the personification of what we're getting here with the teacher. She just kind of sounds like us earlier today. So she's teaching. It's not a good time of year. It's Nebraska. And she says, this is a beastly day. Rain and snow and all caps school. (laughs) It's Saturday and we're making up a day. The fire won't burn and the children are complaining because we are here. I can't blame them. I had a date tonight canceled because of the storm. There is no end to my misery. And it's like the intensity of a mid-1850s school marm is just lovely. I don't know if lovely is the word I would use, but it's intense. I mean, there's a lot going on there. It's kind of like if you wrote a fan fiction of Fifty Shades of Grey, but instead of having like a man-woman relationship, it's just a woman by herself in a schoolhouse. Yeah. Basic in a one-woman grudge match with herself. Like, it's so beyond. And I just need to say, like, there was something in the water in 1986 because, as I said, teased at the beginning of this episode... This is also the same year this book is released as Sarah Plain and Tall, which has a shockingly similar plot line in that I was aggressively trying to figure out if um, Sarah comes from Camden, Maine, but I Mm. do know that she comes from Maine. And she, basically a man in, I believe, Kansas, puts in a newspaper ad for a woman to come marry him I'm, i don't know the plot's like lost i don't know if the marriage is assured but basically she agrees to come and you know teach his children and kind of mother them and see if it's a good fit and then she'll decide if she wants to marry him or not spoiler alert she marries him but it's like what is going on with these women in maine where they're like you know what maine is such bad news that i will literally go to minnesota i will teach in a school where i do not speak swedish but all of my students do And I will slap a stove with a ruler until I get the respect I deserve. I sort of feel like to just pick up on your Janet Jackson thread, which I think is actually vital to all of this. I want to propose that all of these women, while in the great state of Maine, and I'm saying great state of Maine because we have listeners from Maine and also our dear friend Kara hails from Maine and, you know, want to give respect to them. I think when they were in Maine, their life story was Janet Jackson's control. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, I just want to remind us all that that song opens, this is a story about control. And it's like, when I was 17, I did what people told me, did what my father said, and let my mother know. And it's kind of like, that's the Miss Winston story. And then she gets to Minnesota and it's like nasty time. And it's like, what the hell happened on your journey out west, ma'am? Like, would really love to know. 
Well, and we learn a little bit about her father, that he's a ship captain. And there's like a fascinating moment where they're looking at a schooner in a ship in a bottle. And honestly, I have expected her to just like smash it over Kirsten's head because the scenes are all so intense and fraught. But I do think we're going to move towards her being like a beloved role model. I think we're going to get there. But I do think this is the second series in a row where we get an adult single woman character introduced who seems to have a life before we met her that is full of mystery and many question marks but also power and then it's kind of like I'm rooting for her to stay single because I feel like I don't know if she's a serial killer but she's definitely been up to some stuff like on her way out to the prairie and potentially while still there I do not like that she was living in a shed basically because She's coming at us about 160 years previous to the tiny house movement. So I don't actually think that this is like a glow up for her. No. So I am a little bit nervous about where this is going. I am too. And I don't know. I I wanted to talk about like a few other things, but I wanted to make sure we included because I think this is so important to people. Like there is basically like a solid thick circle of people who grew up in Minnesota and listen to our show and Kirsten lovers. Do you know what I mean? Yep. Oh, yeah. Like it's, it's not a Venn diagram. Like it's a strict circle. But I think maybe something that we get out of this teacher character is just like yet another kind of way to be intense and maybe there's nothing wrong with that you think i'm yeah i mean i i'm not trying to be mean about miss winston i think she could be nefarious like i'm here for that no i mean i don't actually think she's nefarious i think she's someone who has like a very rough outer shell because she's probably been through a lot like moving through the world as someone who is not attached to a man and had to like chose for herself quite consciously as you know this is like another aside but Anna is so here for Miss Winston in a way that is like I clocked that immediately because that is such a type of student that you see in school like growing up as a classmate I was never this person who was obsessed with a teacher because I wanted to be a teacher or because she was like a really cool adult like I just was not that person but I had so many classmates who were like let's play school like I I would love to know I mean I was always wanting to know everyone's biz because I love hearing people's life stories but there's always that person who's like I love learning about our teacher I would love information and I feel like the split is so obvious based on how you would react to the scene where you learn Miss Winston is moving into Anna and Elizabeth's house like you either have Anna who's like this is the best day of my life and then you have Kirsten who's like oh my god this is a disaster I was thrilled for them. I was like, okay, this is great. We're going to have some like improvement. I think this is wonderful. Nope. I was like, this is a total disaster. I, this is my nightmare. Like if I ever had to have a teacher stay with me in my parents' house growing up, like I would have lost control. Like paging Janet. I would, I don't even know what pre-control Janet looks like, but that would have been me. Like, uh, I don't want to know what that looks like. Do you remember that time you knew latitudes and longitudes out of nowhere? Yes. Thank you. Okay, so something I knew is that James Garfield was also a school teacher in the 1850s. Mm-hmm. Do you want to hear a quote from him about what it's like to have to listen to women speak in public? I'm scared, but yes. I'm telling you this because I think it helps us understand the intensity of the teacher character. Okay. So he writes, um, he's just heard Antoinette Brown Blackwell give a talk, and he says, There is something about women speaking in public that unsexes her 
and how much soever I might admire her talent, I could never think of the female speaker as the gentle sister, the tender wife, or the loving mother. So like, that's what she's up against. Well, first of all, newsflash, James, no one's thinking about you either, girl. Okay, I like him though. Outside Secondly, <laughs> okay, let me just say this. I'm predisposed to like him because he kept a reading diary. I know. And he loved Jane Austen as I do. Like, Jane is my girl. Like, one of many, but like... If you hit me with I love Jane Austen novels, like the chances that you and I will be friends take an immediate jump. But so James, like you have that jump ready for you, but that kind of language, I know that he was probably phrasing that as a compliment. Like there's this biological predisposition at this point, believing that women aren't capable of the same intellectual activity as men. So by desexing women as readers, he might think he's complimenting them by suggesting that they have the same capability as men in some weird backwards messed up way. And I don't actually need to be his defense attorney because he's not paying me and long dead. But, you know, it just it doesn't sit right with me. No, well, he's in his 20s when he writes that, and he's a president much later. But I do want to recommend a book on him, um, Destiny of the Republic, Ooh, which yes. is is a very, very good book, but also talks about just like how botched his medical care was. Oh, I don't want to say not unlike Marta, because I won't. I won't character assassinate those physicians. They probably did their best. But just like what goes on with his assassination and why he was so popular and then why he's been so forgotten. It's a really, really great book. I will it's just say like you should never retrieve a bullet with your finger and leave it right there. Also, Sarah Val's assassination vacation, if you're still interested in President Garfield after this and some other notable but not really that notable assassinated presidents please check that book out it's very entertaining i told well i mean she talks about jfk so but not enough but it's like it's not really about him because it's sort of about presidents who've been forgotten and of course we will never forget jfk so oh my god never just like i will never. honestly never forget the experience of reading this book i i am scarred for life in many ways and also like marta only got one call out this whole book where at one point kirsten was like and she missed marta and it's like yeah i still miss marta okay <laughs> i'm still going through that I do too. I really do. Like, I think we'll miss her for a really long time. Also, I just want to flag in my notes that I did write down is Miss Winston, are Miss Winston and Amos going to fall in love? And I just, yeah. need, I need you to sit with that. It's weird. And I would be really freaked out if I was like a 19 year old woman teaching a 19 year old or like, I guess she's 18. I forget, but one of those. 19. She's 19 teaching a 19 year old student. That would be a lot of pressure for me is all I'm going to say. I'm sure that's uncomfortable for her. So props to her, but also like... If this is turning into a Hallmark movie where one of them teaches the other about the true meaning of Christmas, I'm out. <laughs> but, like, was it not a powder keg? <sighs> I also love that she committed to never explaining why the school is named Powder Keg School. No. No, because honestly, she doesn't need to do that for us. She's given us enough. She did. She gave us a whole hell of a lot. And I'm going to need to take to my bed take to my dream journal, take to nature, a la Kirsten, and just work this out for myself. Maybe I can find the 60s on DVD at, at not too high a price, but I actually doubt that. Please, will a streaming service, if you listen to, if you listen and work for a streaming service, please make my dream come true. Put the 60s on your service. Thank you. And just to be clear, we're not talking 1860s. This is the 1960s. Nope, nope, nope. Ken Burns Civil War and is already on Netflix. Don't need that. Yep. Need this. Don't need it. 
Do Don't not need that at all. Please give me this. I, I would say Ken Burns wishes he could put his name on this, honestly. <sighs> and if I can subtweet another podcast that just came out that has taken over my life and only one episode has aired so far... <sighs> I don't want to say what it's called. There is a podcast about Dolly Parton that just came out. Oh, that's wonderful. No. Yes, it is oh, wonderful. Okay. okay. I am very upset about what's happening on that podcast. And am I mostly thirsty and salty because it should be me doing that podcast? Yes. Yes. But Dolly deserves everything in this world. And I will not settle for less than that. That's all I'm going to say. I love it. If, if people have hot takes on that, where should they find you? Please come find me on Twitter at MaryMahoney123 and on Instagram at Mimi Mahoney. And I'm trying to be better at posting what I'm reading and listening to at Books and Sound on Instagram as well. And now, Allison, if people have thoughts on Catherine Beecher, schoolroom, aesthetic culture, <laughs> any other thing you care to discuss, where can people find you? People can find me um, at Allison Horrocks on both Twitter and Instagram. And we love when you write to us at American Girls Podcast on Instagram. Um, you can send us a message or check out our content there. You can find us at A Girls Pod on Twitter. And you can also drop us a line at American Girls Pod at gmail.com. All right. So until next time, we do love hearing from you. Thank you so much to everyone who reaches out to us every day. It's really just been such a fun experience. And we look forward to talking to you next time, hopefully not meeting you under such traumatized circumstances. Until next time, thank you so much for listening.